So, uh, Jeff Dill, welcome to the journey. Uh, let me let me just explain a little bit uh, a little bit about what the journey is. Um, the journey is uh, a podcast that I started a year and a half ago, and it was really just trying to uh, feature stories of transformation. And there's a lot of different things that have led individuals. Uh, to that point of transformation, uh, some of it's been obstacles that have been in their in their path, and then they've overcome them. And then what was the story um, that that came out of that overcoming? And others have been um, either their life has been changed, either career changes, or they saw some need where they wanted to be uh, to get involved and want to make a difference. And I know. Uh, you know, as I was listening to a little bit about your story, uh, that was definitely an aspect where I wanted you to share what you're doing now with, with first responders, uh, specifically fire, uh, firefighters. So, but before we jump into all that, um, if you could just maybe share a little bit um, about yourself, but then also about what does Jeff do when he has an opportunity to have fun? What do, what, what's Jeff, uh, if we caught you having fun, what would you be doing? Absolutely. No problem whatsoever. First off, thanks, Kevin, for having me on your show here. Uh, but uh, for, for me, you know, I was born and raised in Rochester, New York. And uh, when I graduated in 79 from high school, uh, I knew I didn't want to work at Kodak or Xerox. Uh, nothing against my parents who worked there. Uh, but uh, and plus, I didn't feel I was the type of person to be in an office or a manufacturer building. So I moved to uh, West Dundee, Illinois. In 1979, my dad's brother, Tom was his name, he's since passed, but he invited me to come out there, see what I want to do with my life. I went to ECC, or at least I started there. Uh, a few uh, months into it, I, met, I went to a party for a friend, uh, my, or actually a friend of my uncle's, and that's where I met my wife. And uh, we met on November 17th of 1979, and we were married November 15th of 1980. And uh, we had two children, 21 and 23. Uh, that's how old we were. Uh, so we got married at uh, 19. Uh, and uh, so this is our 40th uh, anniversary this year for us. But, uh, and it was quite by accident that I got into the whole fire business. Uh, I was working for the school district out there driving a truck. And I just, uh, my father-in-law and I built our first house in Gilbert's and the next door neighbor, uh, Randy Meyer, who was the deputy chief of Rutland Dundee Fire Department came over and said, hey, we're looking for some volunteer firefighters. I said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, I've done so many things in my life. I, I broadcasted I real estate. I worked for the Kane County Cougars. I was one of their founding uh, people to help them, you know, come to Geneva. I used to interview Michael Jordan, and uh, so I, I've done a lot of things in my life. And I thought, sure, why not? I'll give this a shot. And I became hooked and to the, such a point that I went through EMT, paramedic class, fire academies. And then in 1995, Palatine Rural Fire Department was founded. And so I thought, well, I'm 33 years old. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I was fortunate to be one of the founding members. And moved up rather quickly uh, to a lieutenant after her first year and then into a battalion chief a couple of years later. And then in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. Mm. And Division One outside of Chicago sent down numerous firefighters, including a couple from our department. And when these firefighters came back, I, I spoke to many of them as well as across the country, because I was traveling. And so at that time, I was working part-time on the PGA Tour. <laughs> so I have a lot of experiences and things that I do. And I spoke to firefighters, and they all had the same story. They, they saw horrific things. They were picking up bodies in the streets, the animals that littered the landscape, the destruction, devastation. And when they came back, they went to counselors, good people, employee system programs or counselors or chaplains, good people, but they had no understanding of the fire service culture. Mm -hmm. So I decided uh, at that time in 2006 to go back, get my master's degree and become a licensed counselor. And in 2009, I founded Counseling Services for Firefighters. And this is where I was training counselors and chaplains. Hey, you want to work with us? You need to understand us. We're a little different. Not that it's wrong from my point of view. And in 2010, I started receiving uh, emails and phone calls from all over the world saying, do you do anything about firefighter suicides? I, said, I know we had a problem. And so I contacted all the major players, meaning the International Association of Firefighters, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, the National Fire Academy, the USFA, United States Fire Administration, the NFPA, the NVFC, OSHA, NIOSH. No one kept any data 
on firefighter suicides. And so FBHA was founded in 2010. And to this date, we're still the only organization in the U.S. that tracks all fire, meaning uh, volunteer career, wildland, military, as well as EMS and dispatcher suicides. So we, uh, I, I travel typically, it won't be this year, but uh, typically about 100,000 air miles every year. Departments bring us in for workshops. We have a scholarship program for children of firefighters that uh, died by suicide. And we also then have an annual weekend retreat for family survivors. And we also, in addition to that, we have a closed Facebook group on Facebook. We're families, and it was always our intent, my wife and I, Karen, that uh, we had a place where families could talk and bond and know that they are not alone. And it's just been very, very successful from that aspect because I never lost anyone in my life. I never lost a friend, a family member. Uh, since doing this, I've come to know 17 of my brothers uh, that have taken their lives. So that aspect. And, and so we have validated about 1,512 of these tragic events. And the validation process is that uh, when I get confidential reports, either now through emails or on our, we have a reporting system on our webpage. I'll get phone calls, text messages, and they know I keep it confidential. But I have personally spoken to about uh, 1,465 chiefs or family members to hear the stories, the methods, the reasons of not only how they died, but how they lived as well. And we take all this information, all this data, and we pass it on across the, the U.S. So... So, well, I have a couple, there's a lot of questions I have now with, with that. So, uh, so you said something interesting and I want to go back to your backstory and then I'll, then I'll fast forward. Right. So, so having obviously done a, a ton of different things and obviously sounds like a lot of exciting kind of cool things. You said something about something about firefighting that hooked you. What, what was, what, what do you think was about being a firefighter? What was it about that, 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 hooked you when you first were exposed to it way back when, when they were opening up the Palatine world? Well, what I think what happens uh, when I, being a career, or excuse me, being a volunteer, I was always trying something to find that career. Yeah. And, uh, and I think what happens is that I connected with what was instilled into me by my parents, and that is to help, all, help others. Mm -hmm. you know, my parents are still alive. They're 87 and 82 out in, in Rochester, New York. And uh, we, had, we had a great ride. We weren't rich or anything, but we worked hard. We worked hard. We were taught that, you know, I was doing my uh, dusting and vacuuming in my bedroom at the age of six and seven. We did dishes, my sisters and I. You know, and, and so we were always taught that work ethic, but also, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the good Lord and, and his son, Jesus. And so we always had that in our our upbringing. And so when I got into this volunteer firefighter and saw, Hey man, I'm helping people. It, it really said, you know what? I, I could, I could enjoy this as a career because I was, like I said, always looking for that. What, what career could I move into? And so that's why at 33, I decided to give it a shot. And, and believe me, I took a big pay cut <laughs> from when I was working as the truck driver to a new department that was being formed. Uh, but my wife supported me and that was the uh, that was the important issue because like i said we had two daughters uh, it was a struggle but uh, here we are today sure sure okay all right and i think you know i i i always enjoy hearing especially when someone has had a career in it and then retired and then and then you know the 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 telling of the tape is they're still involved right uh, of the same the same career that they loved then they still want to give back to that career post, you know, post retirement. And, um, but, I, but I think it's always important to make, make sure that we remember this, how it started. Right. Right. Which leads right. to my next question. Mm -hmm. When you were working with those firefighters that were returning from Katrina and, and you talked about hearing their stories about mm -hmm. what they were exposed to. And obviously these are, these are, I'm guessing, veteran fire, firemen, firefighters right. Absolutely. Who, had been, who had been exposed to a lot of stuff in just their normal, uh, in Chicago and in, in Palatine and the suburbs, they'd been exposed to, but something was different about dealing with uh, that type of natural disaster recovery. And, um, and, and what was it about that that obviously moved you, but then also moved you to the point where you wanted to go, what, 
we need to do something more than just refer to an EAP because that's, that's kind of the right thing to do, but it's also a little bit of just checking the box. Um, well, and it's a great question because I think for the first time in my fire career, uh, which started in, you know, 89, 90, even as a volunteer for the first time, I saw my brothers and sisters asking for help mm. and had never seen that before. So I thought, oh man, it must've been really horrific down there that they're coming back and they're asking for help. They want to go to counselors and uh, they were just met with a brick wall. I mean, like I said, the counselors are great people, but we never trained in it because we in the fire service and EMS service, we never talked about behavioral health. That was always, you know, the thing that you hide underneath the table. We don't talk about because we don't want to show weakness, a, a thing I call cultural brainwashing. Mm -hmm. We put this uniform on. This is how we are supposed to act. Brave, strong, courageous, give help, don't ask for help, handle all things on your own. Mm -hmm. And so when I finally started seeing these um, brothers and sisters of mine who said, man, it was awful down there. I, I, I need to, you know, I need to go to a counselor or a chaplain for help. And so that opened my eyes to, maybe there is something for me to, you know, get involved in my after career, both as current at that time as a battalion chief and, and for the future is to help out my brothers and sisters. And so, you know, we all can look back on our lives and wonder why we did things and why we were put on certain paths. And like I said, I, I, I asked that self, I asked that question of myself many times. Sure. Because, sure. Uh, so, but uh, I, it's hard work. I'm surrounded by suicide and death on a daily basis. Uh, but um, the, the good that's come out of it for me personally has just been incredible. And, uh, you know, meeting these family members that are probably what I consider some of the strongest, bravest people you will ever meet in your life. Uh, they're willing to um, help others extend, you know, their pain. Uh, but to help others, you know, and uh, they, they call each other. They, it's truly amazing what these, uh, these survivors have gone through, and yet they still have that passion, that love and drive to help remember their loved ones by helping others. Right, right, exactly. You know, and as I mentioned the other day when we were talking about that, uh, I got thrust into, uh, I've been a mental health, involved in mental health for 30 years, but, mm -hmm. but in the last four years specifically, more focused on uh, suicide and, and, and even more specific young adult suicide. And what are the, right. what are the factors that lead to that darkness that someone uh, that has now it's, in, you know, imploded on them where they think the only option is to take their own life. And so we talk about that, this continuum of at one end of the continuum is light and the other end is, is darkness. And, and there's usually not just one thing that, that tips it over. Right. They, right. Well, I should say maybe there's a thing that there, there may be one thing that tips it over the straw that breaks the camel's back, but there's not just one thing that led to it. There's multitudes of, of mm -hmm. things that have led. So it's like a cumulative effect maybe, or there's multiple things, multiple factors that led to someone being in that darkness. And, 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 and I imagine that's, and that's kind of my, what my next question would be is as a firefighter, regardless if it's new on the job, volunteer career, or someone who's a veteran, or or post, you know, um, in the retirement, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say, or in your own in your research with this and, and and working with them, what are some what are some factors that are unique to firefighting, the firefighting culture that maybe some that that are contributing to being in that darkness? Yeah, and, and once again, that's, that's another great question because everyone, you know, when we validate, and I've had 100% compliance from chiefs all across the United States these past 10 years, and everyone believes it's all post-traumatic stress, it's PTSD, and that, that plays a part of it. But unknown, when we look at the, the reasons why, unknown is number one. Chiefs just don't know how, families don't know why, uh, there's no notes left, although we do have we do have numerous notes that families have sent us. But the number one known reason is marital and family relationships, by far. Yeah. And when you start looking at it, you can kind of understand it based on that cultural brainwashing. Mm 
mm-hmm. that you know we were supposed to be strong and handle things all on our own. Well, unfortunately, what happens there is that our lack of communications really drops off. Mm-hmm. We don't want to tell any of our loved ones why we're struggling. We don't want to look weak in front of them. I, I've had numerous firefighters these past years call me in tears saying, Jeff, I need help. And I'll say, well, what's your support system at home? You know, spouse, partner. Or, oh, no, I can't tell my wife because man, she'll think I'm weak. You know, and, and it just amazes me into that aspect of it because we know in all aspects of, you know, in the country when dealing outside the fire service that relationships are important to human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and yet when I hear this, that relationships is the number one issue, it makes me think because when I see my data, a lot of things fly through my mind. Is it because of that cultural brainwashing that society is culturally brainwashed as well? So Kevin, if I asked you, when you hear the term firefighter, what words come to your mind? Just what words come to your mind? Uh, I would I would say you know uh, strong servant, wanting to help, wanting to make uh, uh, I, the word hero comes in my mind because they're going to mm-hmm. go in and right. they're, they're going into places that obviously there's a problem, mm-hmm. and and I and of course I think of one aspect of probably firefighting is actually fires. I mean, I know you guys right. do a lot of other things, but, no, absolutely. But, but that's what I think of as a fire. So yeah. No, and absolutely. And so I ask this question every time I have a uh, training for counselors or chaplains and or families uh, and partners and children. And it's, it's called saving those who save others, a family edition. I asked this question to start it off. And for 10 years, I've gotten the same things that you just discussed. In 10 years, I've never heard anyone say, well, you know, they got anger issues. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, man, they got addiction issues. Oh, real relationships are awful, sleep deprivation, PTSD. And so it makes me think, how brainwashed is society in that? So when we see this every time we put the uniform on and we hear this every time we go to the store and now our loved one wants to divorce us or leave us, how could you? And that rejection, and we know that is a very powerful emotion. And it's what I call cognitive disconnect. We make decisions based on our emotions. And that rejection is a very powerful one. Guilt is a very powerful one. How about anger? Out of our 1,512 that we have validated, we've had 61 fire and EMS that have killed their loved ones and then themselves, murder, suicide. And so when we live this on a daily basis, that rejection, and especially with that relationships, we're not going to tell people, we don't want to be perceived as weak. And then if we do open up, or if you know, we have relationship issues, and they leave, that that's much more than I believe a lot of my brothers and sisters can handle. Sure. Okay. And, and that, and that's not, and you, you alluded to it, but you, but also the other things that could be underneath that, like you said. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Substance yeah, num- abuse issues. Uh, yeah, num- number two is depression. Yeah, number three is post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Uh, number four is medical or physical. And where we see this increased lately in the last couple of years is due to cancer in the fire service. Mm. We've had a lot of firefighter spouses, partners, families calls and say, you know, our loved one took their lives. Uh, They left in the note that they didn't want to burden us with the financial or emotional aspect of this disease. So they've been going out taking their lives. And number five is uh, addictions. And then there's financial and there's legal issues. And then, of course, there's combinations. Maybe they saw a call and it turned really bad. They turned to an addiction and now, you know what, Uh, they don't talk to their loved ones anymore. So you see those combinations fall apart. Uh, Like I said, where it's really makes it different for us is because of that cultural brainwashing. We can't admit that we need to ask for help because we don't want to look weak in front of our brothers and sisters and, and our communities. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I, you know, having been uh, early nineties, so almost 30 years uh, specifically with, with men and not that I, I definitely think there's female firefighters that fall in the same category, but working specifically with men as a culture, this idea of, of um, learning 
to, to know how to ask for help is, is another element of that um, right. cultural brainwashing, right? Real men don't. And if you do, either you, you weren't paying attention and that's why you don't know or you're, too, you're not smart enough to know um, or, or, or like you said, that, that idea of weakness. And, and I think that all plays that huge part. And then when I'm at that place of I've been you know, sleep deprived, um, right. I'm still, I'm still rattled in the acute phase of, of seeing trauma, that secondary trauma. And I'm still in that acute phase. Instead of talking about it, I just try to make that bad dream go away and then suppress it. There's a lot of different factors. And, and right. I think when, you know, that's unique for firefighters mo- that I'm familiar with, at least the rotations itself also plays havoc on uh, you know, the 24 on 48 off mm-hmm. plays, plays havoc on uh, family and marital as well. I, right. I totally get why it's why, mm-hmm. why we do it that way or why you guys do it that way. But it's, it's also struggling with how do you do, how do you do the, the family interaction, the social interaction aspect of it? No, and you bring up some great points in, in your comments. And let's talk about three of them real quick. Uh, cultural brainwashing. It, in society, what's the number one method for males to take their lives? Uh, firearms. Right. And females? Uh, usually su- suffocation or hanging or pills. Yeah. Or pills. Right. Overdoses, pills. When I look at our data, the number one method for males is firearms, and the number one method for females is firearms. Mm. And it makes me think, and like I said, it just makes me think, that's all, is that is it because they've been on those calls and they see they're 99.999% effective or is it, do they fall prey to the cultural brainwashing of how they're supposed to act in a male dominant career that not only they live that way, but they die that way. Mm. And so all these things start making me think about you know, the, this cultural, this brainwashing. Uh, the second one is, is that when we look at the top five known um, warning signs, and, um, and this is after I interviewed over 500 face-to-face, 500 of our brothers and sisters across the country that were struggling with PTSD and suicidal ideations and depression. Uh, recklessness and impulsiveness, anger, isolation, lack of confidence and skills in their abilities, and then number five, of course, sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. And sleep deprivation, it doesn't have just the, the career. It's volunteer as well. Because I remember, you know, I'd take sign up for shifts. I moved up to a lieutenant pretty quickly. So I would be the, you know, shift commander. I'd have my car and the tones go off and I'd go, you know, support the, you know, the ambulance or the engine. And so your sleep deprivation is really, it's, it's a big issue in the fire service. We know this, but no doubt there's just numerous studies. And so when you take all these things together and you put in what it's supposed to be like for a firefighter, both volunteer and career or EMS as well, there's a lot of issues going on within our world. And understand, in 2011, we did our first workshop ever for the Philadelphia Fire Department. And I walked into that first group of 100 Philly firefighters and said, we'll be talking about PTSD and suicide awareness prevention. You you thought I had leprosy. You know, we, we don't talk about those things. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, in 10 years, we've come a long ways, but we still have a very long ways to go when it comes to behavioral health and discussing it, admitting that you're okay, not being ridiculed and mocked. And I mean, we're still a couple of weeks ago, we did a, actually it was last week, we did a Zoom meeting across, you know, live on discrimination in the fire service. It's very alive, both in racial, gender, uh, sexual preference, career versus volunteer, uh, physical disabilities like firefighters that might be deaf. And so what's ever out in America, we have here in the fire service, and that is that we need to start talking about it and approaching it, set some good guidelines and policies, and of course, have our resources. What's our resources? that we can give to our brothers and sisters when they do ask for help. So, which kind of moves in the direction where I, where I kind of wanted to go next is um, it, it, 
because I, I want to I want to touch by, touch on what happens, what you do with the families afterwards. You know, mm -hmm. if someone does does die um, from suicide, but you know, right now I want to you know really focus in on what you were just sharing is that w what things you know through through awareness of of through increasing the awareness and and challenging the stigmas around mm -hmm. that uh, cultural brainwashing and then and, and obviously then the the biases or discrimination that we have um, just uh, of just in general right that right. we have and and then how do we educate individuals um, not just in the fire services but then also their significant others and the professionals that work with them because they're they're going to go to a physician right but are they are they educated enough to ask the questions of the firefighter um, to, to say, this isn't this, yeah, this may be job related, but, but it's also, there's more to it. It isn't just, you know, uh, you know, just suck it up and move on. There's other, other factors. So, so there is that a lot of that awareness and education. So what, what would be some things that, um, you know, what, what are some things you do in your training, I should say, because mm -hmm. this is stuff that you do all the time, raising right. that awareness and educate. What are some educational points that you, that you bring out that our audience could hear? Because we have a lot of, a, a wide variety of different people that are listening that they either themselves are, you know, either first responders or firefighters, or they have family members that are, or friends. What, what are some, some educational things that we could throw out? Not just when they're in that, in that critical acute stage of being in that darkness, but things are building up or things that we can do maybe early intervention. When we first started in Philadelphia, we had two themes, be direct and challenge with compassion. When you hear or see something in your brothers and sisters, you know, challenge with compassion, be direct. Hey, that doesn't sound right. Are, are you okay? Just that, Oh yeah, I'm fine. When you know they're going through a, a tough divorce or a, a child is ill, that, that just doesn't cut it. But we added a third one uh, a few years into our, about 2013 or 2014, and I named a workshop after it called Doing an Internal Size Up. You know, size up is a big thing here in the fire service. You know, you arrive, ah, we got a two-story family residential, we got smoke showing from the A sector, and then boom, we size up what we have. But now I, I took it and I said, an internal size up. And what that means is we need to ask ourselves on a daily basis, why am I acting this way? Why am I feeling this way? And one of the best things that we can do is listen to others. They see us a lot better than we will ever see ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so when we can start reflecting on that, it's okay to look within our, our emotions, our feelings. You know, why did I just shout at my child for something that is so mundane? What, what captured image did I have in my mind that made me react to that way? And believe me, we see things on the job, not only, you know, deadly things, but just how people treat each other, how they act towards each other, themselves, their children. And you start building all this within yourselves. That's why we're unfortunately very negative people mm. in the fire service. We, we tend to become very negative. So if, if we could start learning to do that internal size up. And one of the things that I used to do with clients being a, you know, a licensed counselor is that I would have them just write down at the end of the day, what emotions did they go through and what were those reactions and what were they based on? And then they would come back a week later and say, man, I never knew I was feeling this or I don't know why I did this. And it starts training themselves to look within themselves, listen to others. You know, we have, when we first started, we had one workshop called Saving Those Who Save Others. And uh, we now have seven different workshops. Saving those who save others is still our most in demand. It's, it's about suicide, PTSD awareness. Uh, but uh, that comes in a two hour and a four hour. The four hour, we add a lot of role play. So we have a lot of peer support and SISM teams that bring us in for that type of training. Uh, internal size up is more of a generic. And, and I mean, we cover addictions and depression and stress and anxiety, as well as PTSD and suicide. And that comes in a two hour and a four hour. We have Saving Those Who Save Others, the family edition. This is one where, and it's one of my favorites. I had one wife who wrote me, I said, oh, thanks for the workshop. It's, I, she said, it kind of reminds me of like Jeff Dill Unplugged. You know, it's a, we have a great time with it. We laugh, but the point is, is that 
this is why we act the way that we do and how it's affecting you at home and your emotions and your children. And, and that's key. That's absolutely because that's, that's their first line of help is that support system at home. And if they didn't have them or, you know, and parents can be invited, uh, sisters and brothers so that they can understand working with, uh, you know, the, the firefighters that are in their families. A uh, couple of things that we started really looking at, of course, we have a firefighter's life. That was our original one in counseling services for firefighters in 2009. That's where we train counselors and chaplains. Mm -hmm. You want to work with us. These are the things that you have to think about. I'm not there to teach you how to be a counselor. I'm sure many, many of you have a lot more years than I ever do. But it's just that insight of what we learned. Uh, we have how to create a behavioral health program. And this is key because I estimate that probably less than 5% of all fire and EMS organizations have a true behavioral health program. Having a peer support team and an employee system program or a SISM team just is not enough. It starts with what I believe we have 12 different points, and we've consulted with numerous departments across the United States. Our two biggest ones were San Diego Fire Department and Hillsborough County down in Florida. And number one on that point is education, workshops. We have to let your people know what the issues are. And what we found is that all of a sudden, you got a lot of buy-in. You have a lot of firefighters and or EMS that wanted to get involved to make a difference and a change in their department. And it includes you know, all sorts of things like training your officers, what to look for, how to talk, how to listen, and how to find those resources. And, you know, of course, the family members and retirement, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, guidelines and policies. What are, we, we all have them for administration and we have them for on-scene operations, but do we have them for, you know, within the behavioral health structure and that, that realm? So we, we send out a lot of templates on, on that one. Uh, and so all these things come into play, especially, you know, your peer support teams. And one thing we always tell all peer support and SISM teams, and many departments have enacted it, if you have a SISM team or a peer support team, those members, mandatory, have to go to a counselor twice a year. And if you don't do that, then you're, off, you're suspended off the team until you do. Because that's the problem with us is that we always want to give, give, give. We forget to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that you know, self-care self is absolutely imperative. And then our last point in the, the 12 different points is retirement. What are we doing for our retirees? Maybe those that were suspended, on-duty injuries, fired, resigned. Instead of, you know, maybe just giving them a party with an ax on a board, how can we prepare them? What are we offering as an organization? Do we offer peer support team coverage, chaplain visits? Do we offer counseling benefits? You know, what are we doing to keep them? Because out of the 1,512, we have validated 264, I believe it is, retirees that have taken their lives. And as difficult it is to get active, it's more difficult to get retirees. But out of those 264, 37 took their lives within the first week of retirement. Oh. It's supposed to be our best time of our lives. And yet they were challenged by loss of identity, loss of belonging, and lack of purpose. And you know, Kevin, as well as I do, that lack of purpose after you're responding for 30, 35 years, both career or volunteer, and now, now, you know, you're a greeter at the local grocery store or something, that, that shock has to be addressed. And how, what are we doing to prepare our people for that? Yeah. yeah. I, well, I think that's, I think all the things that you just touched on are huge. And, 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 and my mind was going, you know, following each one of those and how many, <laughs> Uh, not, not only is that a huge, huge task to try to address all 12 of those, right. but, how, but how critical and how interwoven those, those, those are, because it's not just one, it's just not one of those spokes. It's, it's, right. it is all those different aspects. And, and, absolutely. you know, I, in the midst of doing some, doing some research they we, I was doing, and this was a few years ago, I was looking up, uh, you know, what demographic was most likely to uh, die by suicide and it they identified um and again this was like four years ago they identified um males that were caucasian that were over the age of 60 mm -hmm. as the most most likely demographic that would die 
die by suicide, not attempting suicide necessarily, but completing suicide. And, um, and some of the factors that were attributed to that were some of the things that you were just referring to. Um, you know, some of it would, would be health and, you know, their health is going down now that their career most likely is coming to an end. Um, they, they, they longed for retirement, but didn't plan for retirement. Right. And, and they didn't plan for that second part. And now that it's happened and they've, you know, you know, usually it's later than the first week, but they've done all those things that they checked off their boxes, but there's no fulfillment. There's no purpose there. Um, or, or maybe they've been so career focused that there's no family there either. And, and so there's a lot of contributing factors. So it's, it's not, but I think that retirement one and, and really living, living your, living your career so that when you can live your, live your retirement. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's been our goal here and our, our mantra at FBHA. I'm not here to change our culture. I loved our culture. I would do it a hundred times over. Uh, but we're here to enhance it. And you do that through education. I feel education is the key to most things in life. But when what you had mentioned about, you know, you're looking at talking about retirees. And I look, like I said, I always go back to our data. What makes us different than any other organization out there when it comes to training is that 99% of it comes from our brothers and sisters. It comes from the interviews, it comes from the validation process, it comes from the family members. You won't see us put I think there's some stuff from the National Suicide Foundation or something, but just a, a few things. And when we, I always go back to the data, though, and it shows no discrimination. It doesn't care if you're a firefighter or EMS. It doesn't care if you're a volunteer career, city, suburban, rural, male, female, ages, ranks. Um, but what's so amazing is, is when I look at the ages, and we have it broken down into categories because we, media contacts us all the time for our data. And so I have it like from 17 to 30, 31 to 40, 41 to 50, 51 to 60 and, and above. But that's 17 to 30, that 31 to 40 and 41 to 50 is almost dead even. Uh, it's, it's like within you know, 5, 10, 15 with, of each other. So it, it, it really is, it's, we have some that, um, our youngest was a 17-year-old volunteer uh, who unfortunately was on a vehicle accident uh, that were three of his buddies that were just over at his house. Mm -hmm. and, and the chief admittedly said, you know, we, 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 we blew it with him. We never talked to him about the emotional aspect. And two weeks after that vehicle accident, he took his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's not a lot of discrimination in, in those ages, whether it's uh, one in, you know, in uh, the fire academy or if they've retired. Our oldest one was a 97-year-old uh, retiree who left a suicide note. His grandson was in our workshop, and he went home and talked to his dad, and his dad called me and read me the note, and he said, you know, I, I retired 50 years ago from a major department, and he names the department. He said, I saw and did things as a firefighter no human being should ever do in their lifetime, and when I retired, all those images played out in my head. I turned to alcohol. Why my wife never left me, I'll never know, but I buried her three days ago, and then he went out to the garage and hanged himself. You know, so these are, these are problems that we need to address in the fire service, and it will take time. You're not going to make these changes. I mean, we've had 200 plus years of fire service. It's not going to change overnight. It's, it's different geographically. I find that uh, the South and Midwest and West are a lot more open to changes in the behavioral health aspect instead of, you know, up, up in the East. And it's not that they don't want to. It's just that I have some great friends on some departments up there. And when you talk to them, they'll say, hey, you know, my great-great-grandfather was on the job. My great-great-grandfather. And it goes down. They, they have more history in the fire service than we have states out in the West Coast. You know? So it's tough to change that, that thought process. But we're doing it. You know, the fire service, we're doing it. We're just trying to add our little piece of, hey, this is the data, this is the information, these are the families and what they're expressing to us. And, and the families, like I said, God bless them. It's, uh, you know, when you lose someone to a vehicle accident or a disease, tragic as that is, there's some understanding. But for these families, they're haunted by, what did we miss? Why didn't they come to us? They're always helping others. And it becomes a struggle for so many, and yet they want to help so many others. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, uh, 
as a, a good friend of mine who unfortunately lost her son uh, to suicide when he was 19 years old. Uh, she talked about that she needed to turn her pain into purpose. And if she could mm -hmm. just help one person um, that, that was struggling and be a light for one person struggling in that darkness so that, so that either one, they wouldn't have to take their life or two, um, the, that the family wouldn't have to go through the pain she did. Um, it was worth it, you know, and, and you're right. I think there's so many things when it comes to when, when someone dies by suicide, there's so many unanswered questions that right. then leads to the significant others to fill in the blanks um, with guilt and it complicates the grieving process. Yeah, um, right. And, and it just, it, it's uh, traumatic death always complica complicates the grieving process, but there is an extra twist when it comes to, comes to suicide. And, you know, there was something that you said and I, and it resonated with me. And I think that's probably uh, when I, when I think about the workshops that you, that you're doing, and then some of the requirements you have for, for your counselors that are working with them, working with the firefighters, it reminded me when I was originally doing some, uh, some gender specific work, men's work back in the nineties, mm -hmm. again, with that stereotype that I was referring to in uh, that, in that bad, not by a specific male that taught me things, but just as my own observation through media and through observing family members and in the, in the cultural aspect of it. When I went to that first retreat and workshop, I saw other men model expression of feelings and expression of thoughts, which then gave me permission to do the same thing. Right. And, and that modeling was not a didactic teaching, but it was an experiential teaching. So, so when someone, when a firefighter goes and gets help and, and learns, learns that it's okay to be open, when it learns to, learns how to go and practice uh, self-awareness and then self-management of the emotions, and I don't mean just the suppressing of them, I mean mm -hmm. being able to express it and, and thought stopping and, and different things. Well, once they get liberated from certain things, they're going to, they're going to tell other people and they're right. going to tell, tell their fellow, uh, tell their fellow firefighters, the ones that they're stationed with. And, and that's culturally, that's how I think that shift happens, but it comes to that awareness and, and education, but then also the modeling that's happening that, that you're doing and that, and then obviously your other instructors are doing too. No, you're absolutely correct on that statement. Uh, where we've seen the biggest change in these past 10 years is where senior firefighters, both male and females, have stood up and said, hey, you know what, I'm struggling. I need help. And if I am, then chances are you around me are, have some issues as well. And so that's where we see the key progress in this behavioral health battle and within the fire service. And I think, and I, what I, as I'm listening to you, you know, and obviously you put a ton of, ton of research and ton of thought into, into it and, and not only working with the, the mental health, behavioral health professionals that are working with them, but looking at this 12 prong approach for the different, um, uh, the different uh, districts that you're working with, but then helping the ones that are, that are active and then also retired but then working with the families as well, because like you said, if the number one tipping point, right, uh, mm -hmm. for, for individuals being in that darkness is that family and marital discord, right? if we can, if you guys can work on and we can work on helping educate and, and raise that awareness, because I've had, I think of some of the firefighters and first responders that, that I've worked with, um, probably the thing that if it wasn't their um, superior at work saying, you got to go now, mm -hmm. um, it's time. It was, they didn't want to lose their family or their relationship. Right. And, and, and then once they came in and started starting seeing it wasn't what they thought it was, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it may not have saved their marriage, but it may have saved their life. Well, and, and absolutely. Uh, you know, when working with uh, family or family spouses and partners for uh, marriage, uh, when I was up there in Illinois practicing. One of the things I, and I'm very direct, <laughs> I'm very direct. And uh, they would come in, the, the couples and either male or female is the firefighter. But I would, I would always ask questions. And the first question would be, hey, can you name me your top three best friends? 
And they would, we all, Tom, Sue, Joe, Jill, and they would hardly ever say their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? This, this is where we have to, where we have to start looking at things because it should come automatically that your best friend is, is your spouse or partner. And why, why aren't they? Why didn't that name come to the forefront? And so we know, you know, we just start that as a, you know, just a little opening exercise to get them thinking about, Hey, you know what, this is not going to be just some pushover session. We, we might get into some difficult uh, issues and mm -hmm. it's important. That's why you came to us. Right. It's because you want to find out why either one or both of you are acting in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's key, key to it is that, we, you know, and it doesn't always happen in the first session. No, many no, times it doesn't, it doesn't happen. It, right. You know, if, you know, and if it does, I'm usually a little leery because it was, <laughs> it's like, well, that was a little, you know, but, <laughs> but the, the element of creating that space to, to, to do that sacred work, to do that, 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 that work. And then that relate, that space is really created because that therapeutic relationships created, but you have to have that put in place to do that tough work um, to be an honest and to be vulnerable. And, and many of us would appreciate being able to see what's really on the table versus guessing what's there. And, right. and so that's where that honesty comes in that you were talking about. Um, and that's not to say that we're, you can always recover from what, what the honesty is, um, but at least you won't continue hurting each other um, or hurting yourself by the secrets. No, and, and that's where I find, uh, for me, the greatest satisfaction is in 2010, it was tough to find counselors uh, that worked with first responders. And that growth has been incredible. You know, the, the dedication to make um, themselves grow in knowledge of first responder world, like yourself, it's just, it's, it's incredible, Kevin. And, uh, you know, I, we have the National Volunteer Fire Council asked us to put together a national directory of counselors across the United States. I mean, we're, right now we're at about 190 that I have spoken to and vetted. I don't think I would have found half of that back in 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. So these things are all making improvements for the first responders. They can have confidence in going to a counselor outside of employment assistance programs, counselors that understand what their world's about. You might not have been a firefighter, but you know the language and you know what the, the uh, mystique is or the lack of what it really is. Mm -hmm. And that's important. So that's why, I, you know, kudos to my brothers and sisters in the counseling world that have put forth such a great effort to help understand our brothers and sisters and their families. So Jeff, as we're, as we're wrapping up, because there's, you're doing a lot of great, you know, great things here. Um, if there was something that you wanted to, to share with our audience, share with the people that are listening, uh, what would be something you'd want to share with them uh, regarding your organizations, re regarding what, what you've been, been involved with? Uh, what would you want to share with them? Well, you know, FBHA, with the, I think one of the biggest things is my support from my wife, Karen who volunteers 30, 40, without her, FBHA is not around. Mm -hmm. So it's important in all aspects of life that we have some type of support, some type of structure that supports us. And that means you might have to open up. You, what I call, you have to push pride to the side mm -hmm. and ask for help and communicate. To me, when I look at any type of incident, any type of scene, uh, fire, EMS, or whatever it is, when, when they do a review it afterwards, what they find to always be the number one issue is lack of communications. Yeah. We need to open up our hearts. It doesn't mean you have to have tissue and go around crying on every issue, but we need to open up our hearts, especially to those that we trust, whether it's our chaplain, a counselor, or of course our loved ones at home, that it's okay to you know, admit, hey, I'm, I'm a human being doing a very difficult job and, uh, and I see people at their worst. And unfortunately, I tend to pick up a lot of that uh, emotions and, and I bring it home to our family. Just talking, talk to your children and, and say, hey, this is why I act this way. You know, because of the things that I see on the job and I don't mean to do it. And so if I'm acting a certain way, please 
tell me so that we can talk about it and discuss it. So once again, push pride to the side, have that strong base uh, within you know, your support system, whether family, friends, find that go-to people that you can always talk to and open up and, and trust them. You know, Jeff, I couldn't, I, I couldn't reiterate, you know, um, anything more because uh, it takes a ton of courage uh, to take that step in to do uh, counseling, to, to reach out for help, to, to be vulnerable enough to say that. Um, but, you know, we talk a lot of times about, but that's true strength. That that true that true strength of a warrior and and my very first uh, uh, article that I wrote when I first opened up KP Counseling in 2001 was in October right after 9/11 and I talked about um, that the individuals that were going into those buildings were warriors um, they weren't looking for headlines they they were doing they were doing their job and but the strength comes from that vulnerability because we still have to come back into doing everyday life. Um, we still got to come back into uh, being relational um, because none of us can be that island and we need our, right. need our teammates. We need our family. Um, but, but to create those relationships, we, we need to be vulnerable, we need to be open to it. And that takes courage and that's, that's real strength. So Jeff, I appreciate everything that you're doing. You're, you're obviously you have a ton of energy uh, and, and passion about doing this. And like you said, when you first decided to go into the, 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 the fire services and take a major pay cut, your, your wife was your partner then. Right. And, uh, and, and it looks like uh, she is continuing to stand by your side and, and, and be your partner during this time period as well. And uh, I appreciate you modeling this for everyone and, and, and being a light in the, in the darkness that's out there. I appreciate it, Kevin. It's uh, it's been an honor, and I'm glad uh, that you invited me to talk. I mean, we only had an hour or so, but uh, I could I could talk a lot longer. Uh, and if anyone wants to, you know, take a look at our website, it's uh, of course www.ff, like firefighter, b is in Bravo, h a dot org, and uh, you'll have my contact information in there. If uh, you need some help, if you need to find a counselor, or you know, if you're across the United States and you need some help, family, whatever it is. But Kevin, I, I really appreciate and thank you for all your dedication and, and changing your, your thought process as well. You know, counseling, but now going into the first responder world and you, you learned, you grew and it's, and it's paying off. So thank you for helping out my brothers and sisters. Not a problem. Thank you very much. And if they go to the website, um, would that also be if some if someone who is uh, involved with fire department, if would they also be able to contact you there through to get to, to get involved with the workshops and? Yeah, absolutely. All my contact information, my cell phone's on there as well, and my okay. email. Okay. okay. If you could say the web, the website one more time. Sure. It's of course www.ff like firefighter b is in Bravo h a dot org. All right, perfect. Well, I appreciate it, Jeff, and uh, and I am uh, real grateful that you are able to do uh, what you're doing for the firefighters that I know that are active, as well as the ones that are retired. Um, I appreciate everything you're doing. So thank you. Take care now, sir. Thanks.